to me, business is not the main thing. It's not the most important. Like your time is and your experience in this world is. And so if I get to share in that with you and we can create things together, like we can learn together, we can grow together, we can hurt together and heal. That to me is is what matters. A boss babe is unapologetically ambitious and paves the way for herself and other women to rise, keep going, and fighting on. She is on a mission to be her best self in all areas. It's just believing in yourself. Confidently stepping outside her comfort zone to create her own vision of success. Welcome to the Boss Babe Podcast, the place where we share with you the real behind the scenes of building successful businesses, achieving peak performance, and learning how to balance it all. I'm Danielle Canty, your host for this week's episode and president and co-founder of Boss Babe. Now, today I'm joined by Chloe Harkinball. She is an internationally acclaimed social impact designer, sociologist, and entrepreneur. To date, she leads over 2 billion, yes, you heard that right, 2 billion in social impact system transformation, all designed to deepen personal wellness, interpersonal resilience, community safety and abundance, and human civil rights. And then 2020, Forbes actually called Chloe a key revolutionary change in the course and the face of business and society and named her to their renowned. She was added to the Forbes 30 under 30 list and she has graced stages around the world, including a TEDx talk which went viral. And she's also spoken alongside Nobel Peace Prize nominees such as Stacey Abrams. So Chloe is so inspiring. She is an activist and she really pushes leaders in the streets and in the boardrooms alike to reimagine well-being beyond personal wellness and assess their own role in transforming systems for a better world. But she also has an attitude where this starts within and it can start on social media too. What I love about Clary is she doesn't come from your typical entrepreneur background, although she is transitioning into that. She comes from a corporate background where she's learned to leverage social media to help her make moves, help her leverage her voice and get her message out to more people. This is not only a really inspiring podcast, it's also one where I think we all can learn and we can all look at ourselves and think, oh, what else could I do that leaves society better than where I found it? So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Let's dive right in. Chloe, welcome to the Boss Babe Podcast. Thank you for having me. I am so grateful to be here. I am really inspired by doing this interview today because the way this has come about is actually you were voted the valedictorian in our Influencer School alumni. But when you were voted this, I had no idea about your (laughs) resume. You've run billion-dollar nonprofits. You've been Forbes 30 under 30. In fact, Forbes described you as, I have it written here, a key revolutionary changing the course and the face of business and society. Like, how how did you feel hearing being described like that? Yeah, it was a bit surreal, to be honest, just because the work that I do is really, and I was telling this to Hunter right before the show, that if I can just help make one person feel more comfortable in their skin and their lives, that to me is a a life well lived. So to be in Forbes described this way at like a systems level and helping change the narrative for communities, it's so surreal. And I, I feel a balance of responsibility, but a lot of honor in that too. 
And I think that's so beautiful. It's like you are, you know, quite often social media gets this like bad reputation or influencers, let's call them in brackets, they get this bad reputation. But actually when influencers in the right places, man, is it powerful? Does it inspire change? Does it like start these revolutions? And I think that's really powerful. And so I kind of want to start there. I want to start a little bit about your story and what you've been, you know, using your life to do and the change that you're creating in the world. So let's just start as like, you know, growing up and what your focus was. Yeah. And I I so appreciate you asking me it in the context of a life story because that's exactly how it feels to me. So I believe, you know, work is a part of what we do, but it's informed by who we are. And so for me, work or my career really started from a very young age. I tell people that I became an anthropologist somewhat on accident in the fourth grade. So I'm multiracial and growing up, you know, I didn't even think anything of it. I have cousins with blonde hair, blue eyes, cousins who look like they are, um, they live in India, even though they live in Trinidad, cousins who are black Americans. And so I grew up really multi-ethnic. And in school, that was really not talked about until again, fourth grade. And I had a girl in my class, she goes, so what are you? And I'm looking at her and I'm like, oh, I'm your friend. And she goes, no, what are you? I'm like, Chloe. And she rubs her skin and she's like, no, what are you? And she was indicate. it occurred to me years later, she meant like, you're not white, you're not black, and that's all I know. She was confused about, I was probably nine years old. And so from there, I, from a very early age, I had to start answering questions about identity, about self, community, heritage. Can I just ask you Mm -hmm. at this point, so at nine years old, when another girl is asking you that, and you're so baffled by the question initially, what? What did that spark in you at that point? Was that, I'm curious whether it was a turning point or sent you down a a different path or just made you question things and ask questions to your parents. I'm just curious Mm -hmm. as to what then, because you remember that story. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering like how that impacted things. Yeah, it definitely made me feel like in the moment I knew I had to consider a much larger universe of things that no one else around me was being asked to consider. Obviously, fourth graders don't sound like that, so it probably sounded a little different in my head, but I knew I felt something much larger that I didn't know how to navigate. And I didn't tell my parents, actually. I remember holding it to myself because I was really confused and a little sad that I was being called different. However, you know, as I've moved forward, those kinds of questions and that type of curiosity is something I really welcome. Because looking back, she really was just curious. Like she had no, you know, premonitions one way or another. She just wanted to know you're different and I'm curious as to why. And so, you know. Well, you're not different. You're different to what, to her and what she knew. And I also think that's an important narrative. Yeah. Because we can all move to different countries. Mm -hmm. I can go to India and I will be different. Right. And so I think that's also really like powerful to really understand too. Yeah. And I think it brought up for me the notion of norms and norms are very relative. So what's normal in one context could be completely foreign in another context. But again, I mean, I'm really young and what I understood in that moment was that I should be curious about what's going on. So fast forward, you know, I go to 
college. And we've talked about this before the interview, but you know, I'm very much first gen. So my mom immigrated from Trinidad and Tobago for university in her twenties. And my grandfather, he actually was born into sharecropping. And so for anybody who's listening, who doesn't know, sharecropping was basically the kind of workaround after slavery was abolished. And so it, on paper, was a way that um, especially Black Americans would be able to make money, quote-unquote, by doing all of the labor on land, but they weren't allowed to leave. They could never actually make enough to buy their freedom, and they were threatened with threats of murder or violence if they tried to leave. So that's, And what year was this? Yeah, so this is when my grandfather was born in, like, 19, early 1940s. <gasps> My grandfather's still alive today. Wow. He's my hero. So, like, it, this is not a really distant narrative, right? But a lot of people think it is. And so my when my dad was born, he was born during segregation. So truly, in that part of my family, my siblings and I are the first generation born legally free and legally equal, which I put air quotes around that because there's a lot in our legal system that needs to change. However, we, yeah, we were the first ones who could go to any school we wanted to. We were the first ones who could drink from any water fountain we wanted to, right? And that's here in the U.S. And so with these kinds of, you know, there's a lot of cultural history there. There's a lot of belongingness and togetherness in my family. And we didn't have necessarily the um, background of wealth because we, like, our communities literally were not allowed to amass wealth or to own things. And so all of my family was in housing. My grandpa was the first black realtor in Memphis. And, you know, my dad also worked in his company, which was really amazing. My mom was a loan officer for a long time. And when the market crashed in 08, um, we suddenly were in a very stressful situation. So we went from being very like stable and sturdy and my mom's sending money back home to the islands. My dad is taking care of his family here. And we went from being able to support our whole, you know, um, immediate and expanded family to now being barely able to support ourselves. And all my life I had been taught, you know, if you if you're good, if you're generous to people, if you have a good heart, everything else works out. And so, you know, on one hand, my family had done that and I was really proud. But on the other, we were in this deep financial scarcity that really was confusing. And I thought to myself, well, I know it's not because my parents have bad hearts. All they've done is take care of everyone their whole lives. Like if they have a shirt on their back, they'd give it to somebody else. And yet we're in this really difficult situation. So when I got to college, I stumbled into an anthropology class. And in that class, it was called The History of Poverty in America. And while, you know, we're studying textbooks and we're studying theories and whatnot, we're actually just studying my family's story. And so to be able to trace from slavery, Jim Crow, sharecropping, segregation, first generation free, or an immigrant story into what that means for lived experiences, I was just seeing the stories of my my people and my family. And so it really gave me the tools to understand how systems can impact your lived experience, which is very personal and intimate. And when you think about things like how um, scarcity affects your stress levels. It affects your health outcomes. It affects, you know, how you see yourself, how you see your communities. Like literally everything you experience are impacted by systems. So what were bets on Wall Street for people who had an interest in numbers and markets, et cetera, was real scarcity for my communities. And so looking at that, I've decided, well, I can't change the world. And even if I could do nothing more than just support my family, that would be enough. 
I just needed to figure out how to take what I had learned and turn it into a toolkit of sorts or some way to help the people that I care about. And that's what really led me into social design. So that's where I am now. I'm, I consider myself a social designer, which is really informed by my personal experience, formally trained as an anthropologist and sociologist, and then happened to get lots of business experience working in human-centered design and um, developing solutions to change systems. And for those who don't know, can you describe what a social designer is? Because mm. I don't actually think that's a concept <laughs> or a role that a lot of people are familiar with. It's okay. I get this question every day of my life. Yeah. So a social designer is someone who thinks about design from the perspective of how we engage socially. So that could be how you perceive yourself, how you relate to other people, how you navigate systems, or how institutions navigate um, or create the world all around us. So a social designer is someone who can look at all of these different types of relationships and say, hey, there's something here that I think if changed could improve the community's well-being. And that's really my approach. Can we put that into a more tangible, mm-hmm. something like tangible that you have de- changed, like designed differently? Mm. So is yep. it like, it is part of social design, like, okay, um, putting policies in place where, um, let's say you could do it as, as, as small as a company. So mm-hmm. a company changes social design to ensure that all of its images now have reputation of different ethnicities. Or is it, bigger than that. I I think it's both. And the scale that I work at is bigger than that. So a great example, um, in Memphis, where I'm from, we have a lot of people from different communities and lots of different countries, and they have refugee and immigrant status. Well, there was a mismatch between like, they really couldn't find employment, especially livable employment because of certain language gaps. So we said, okay, we know they're really talented. We know they come with a lot of food skills and love for food. Let's design food entrepreneurship opportunities and give them the right technical assistance, startup resources, physical space, et cetera, to make sure they have everything they need to thrive. And so the role of a social designer is to answer the question, what is needed, what is wanted, and what is viable to create some kind of maybe like a new program or a new policy or um, a new strategic plan to help make sure that everything needed is in place for people to be successful. So are you a creator of equity almost? Mm. That was my big yes. learning that mm-hmm. I um, learned. Really had, honestly, I'm like always really believe in like vulnerable conversations. And yeah. I really didn't understand my white privilege in mm. going into 2020 at all. Um, yeah. Obviously I was living, I only had just moved um, from the UK to the States. And so I didn't actually understand the difference between equality and equity Mm -hmm. either at that point. Yeah. And the sense of my understanding is like, you know, equality, everything is equal. But the point is we don't have equality in our systems. And equity is like, there's someone, and please correct me if I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm wrong, but my understanding is equality is if you all have the same size stool mm-hmm. and equity is like recognizing that you don't, you have to give other people bigger stools to get them to the same point. Like the stools are different sizes that need to be yeah. done to elevate people. And so what I'm hearing you're saying is like, you're going and looking at, okay, th- this, there's a stool needs to exist here because the discrepancy is so large. We need yeah. to change and design new systems and policies, et cetera, mm-hmm to make sure these things changes. Would that be a good way of describing that? And please correct me if I've 
incorrect in any of that. That's a beautiful analogy. Yeah, that's perfect. And I would say that, you know, for anyone who hasn't, there's a graphic I believe you're referencing. Yeah, yeah. I remember like learning <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah, the graphic's amazing because it what it shows is there's a baseball game, there's a fence, and there are people of different heights. And they just give everybody an equal size box, even the and the shortest little guy, it doesn't matter that he's standing on the box, he still can't see over the fence. And I think what that looks like in systems is that if, for example, your family wasn't allowed to even buy a house um, until like the 1950s, you can't have expected that same family to have generational wealth through real estate because it literally was not allowed. Whereas another family who was allowed might have centuries and decades of property ownership, which um, equates to political power and more voice in business access, et cetera. So I think that was a perfect analogy. And also, I just want, you know, you were talking about being nine years old and someone, you know, a, a young girl saying like, hey, why are you different? And not necessarily malice behind that, but like questioning it and something you hadn't questioned. And I also like from conversations that we've had before, you also shared with me, you know, being from a multiracial family, you actually saw this within your family, right? You start this podcast by saying, you know, some of my family are blonde and blue eyes and some of them have black skin and Tell me like what you were seeing the differences. Like talk to me about that from the eyes and the perspective of a young girl. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. So it really showed up for me in school. So the schools I went to were predominantly white. And so like truly there were times where I was the only person of color in my classes. It did not register to me for a very long time that that was meaningful at all (laughs) because we really just felt like we were all equal. We are all just little kids. Like we were just showing up. But And everyone was equally talented, equally passionate, and for the most part, there was no issue. But the older we got, I started to recognize that the things my white friends were doing at school were totally foreign or new to the things that my black cousins or my cousins in Trinidad or myself had ever heard of. And so, like, I— This is a joke I make all the time, but it's not really a joke. Um, I didn't know what an internship was until my junior year of college. And there were kids who I went to school with who had internships in high school. And so it's things like that or traveling to Europe. Girl, that sounded like something from a book, right? Mm -hmm. And there were people Mm -hmm. who I showed up to school with and they were like, oh, yeah, I just spent my summer in Europe. And I was like, what? (laughs) What does that mean? And so, you know, just seeing the opportunity difference, that it wasn't about talent, it wasn't about passion, it really was certain certain individuals and certain communities had more opportunities than others, and that's where I start to see a gap in outcomes. So the ways that my white peers performed outpaced the way that, on average, my um, peers and family of color performed because of opportunity. I love that. And I really appreciate us having this conversation. I know lots of people shy away from this conversation Mm -hmm. because it is a difficult one. And I just want to encourage anyone who's listening, like this is not a defensive conversation. No one needs to feel like bad or the other, but it's it's important that we acknowledge it and then Mm -hmm. decide, like, you know, you talk about social design on this huge scale. You're working with, you know, billion dollar nonprofits, mm-hmm. but we can all take responsibility for what we can do in our immediate circles, what we can yeah. ask for in our workplaces, what we can do within our communities. And I think mm-hmm. that's also really important um, for everyone to be able to take some responsibility and also not to have you know, necessarily shame around maybe things that you did ignorantly before, but the important thing is we learn and we change and we move forwards. Mm -hmm. Um, 
what inspired you? So obviously I can hear the story around like, okay, I want to make this change. And, um, obviously going to college, like I'm curious like how that journey then developed mm. into where you're at now and how you became Forbes 30 under 30. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm going to answer that question. One thing I just want to emphasize, you said so beautifully is that I really hope if nothing else from this podcast, people recognize that it's okay to not know. And I really hope people don't feel shame around not knowing. I think this work is complex. It's There's a lot yeah. going on. And if you don't know, that's okay. Just figure out how to learn. Yeah, exactly. So, no, I'm glad you said that too to because that. also I'm like, okay, I don't want to say the wrong thing or ask an insensitive question. Mm-hmm. So I always appreciate like, you know, a space to be curious. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, how a, a lot of a lot of us learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for holding this space too. Of and course. thank you for sharing that. Cause I also think, you know, the only way we're going to create change is if people learn and they're mm-hmm. educated and we put ourselves in positions to be educated. And just like we do lots of things in life, you're going to make mistakes along the yeah, way in that education. Absolutely. absolutely. And you know, some of those mistakes are going to be minor and some of those are like, you need to try and make them as minor as possible. Like mm-hmm. that's your role is to minimize the failures that you make. But yeah, um, yeah thank you. So of course. On. So in terms of how I got from really starting out to where I am now, you know, when I graduated college, I thought, okay, I'm passionate. I have a degree. I want to make a difference. Let's go crickets. I had no idea how to get a job. Like, like I knew you sent out your resumes. I knew those kinds of things, like the technical career stuff, but I really didn't know how to find like on social, what we call a niche. I didn't know how to find my niche in the professional world. And so I wanted to make a difference. I wanted a job where I could see a tangible impact. And yet I was really struggling. And so I had so many mentor phone calls with phenomenal people who had no bandwidth. I, you know, put in my resume at certain places. I would hear back, but then the culture literally spelled burnout and I was already burnt out. So that wasn't going to work. And, you know, I started a citizenship exam program for people experiencing refugee status or immigrant status with a local nonprofit. I'm teaching that. I pick up two retail jobs. I'm tutoring the ACT and I'm babysitting. All of this is happening. I'm still broke. So I was wow. like, okay, I need to find something different. So I get that cohort through and I have a girlfriend who just happens to text me and she says, hey, I work at a design research firm. They're hiring for an anthropologist. You're the perfect fit. Please apply. So it was just like, you know, those things that when they line up, everything happens so quickly and it just works out. That was this job. So I come in as the most junior degreed, the most junior tenure of the group, and I happen to get on a project working with early care and education, and it's just lighting my brain on fire. Like just as a small a small nerd moment, 90% of our brains form by age six. So whereas people don't realize that those early years are not just not babysitting, it's really the most critical part of the education continuum. So as I'm learning this and thinking about, you know, what I want to help in communities, education was really the lever that changed my life. So getting to work in this was phenomenal. And I just start asking questions. I start making myself as valuable as possible to our project lead with no end in mind other than a really good product. Well, fast forward at toward the end of the project, our company announces that they're closing. And the project lead tells everybody who's involved with the project that, hey, Chloe was actually the brains behind this project. 
And on this team, I had, there were PhD anthropologists, there were people with master's degrees in design, all of these things. And it was me that they that they pointed out. And he said, if you want this project to continue, she's the one you need to hire to design it. Wow. Yes. And so that with that comment, the next company hired me to flesh out the initiative. Can I ask? Because I think this is actually really, like a lot of people struggle with this. Mm-hmm. They are like struggle with sharing their voice. So they're yeah. in teams or they're in, um, you know, just working on anything, like in mm. the community, but they think, oh, I, I'm not going to speak up because maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. And so the fact that you were highlighted as someone who was so important to, you know, support this project and move this, mm. like, so and, and significant in moving this uh, project forwards. I'm curious what your confidence was like at that point. Were you just like, oh, I'm just going to share anything and everything? Or did you get nervous sharing mm-hmm. your ideas because you were young? You were just yeah. out of like college and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'm thinking back to what my confidence <laughs> was like at that at that point. So I'm curious as to what that, what the narrative was mm-hmm. where you felt comfortable to give your ideas. Let's take a minute to talk about one of my favorite educational platforms, Masterclass. I have been referring back to this platform for years and I love that you can simply log in and take inspirational classes from world-class coaches no matter where you are. If you haven't explored Masterclass yet, go to masterclass.com slash boss babe and scroll through some of the categories. I think you'll really love what you see. One of the latest classes I tuned into was Anna Winter's class on creativity and leadership. She takes you into her office as Vogue's editor-in-chief and it was so inspiring to learn about her leadership style, team culture, and how she encourages creativity in her team. Not only does Masterclass have tangible business development classes that you can watch at your desk or listen to on the go, but it also includes classes in 10 other categories ranging from food, home and lifestyle, music, wellness, design, and so much more. There are over 200 classes to choose from with new classes added every month. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Plus, Every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash boss babe. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash boss babe, masterclass.com slash boss babe. The other day, the team and I were talking about how much our audience loves biohacking. And whenever we release content based around creating better habits for our lifestyle and health, you all seem to really soak it up and request more. So I wanted to share about our podcast sponsor, Prolon, today because I've never seen a company like this. Prolon is a revolutionary plant-based nutrition program that nourishes the body while making cells believe that they're fasting. There are so many strategic benefits to fasting and Prolon helps you hit these goals without actually needing to fast. Prolon's five-day program includes snacks, soups, and beverages, all designed to keep your body in a fasted state. And you get everything pre-packaged, labeled, and ready to go, so there's no guesswork. It's super simple, and it works. Extended fasting of at least two to three days has proven to produce unique benefits like cellular rejuvenation, metabolic support, and increased cardiovascular health. So if you're ready for a fasting program that doesn't leave you hungry or exhausted and instead gives you more energy, I highly recommend giving Prolon a try. Right now, Prolon is offering Boss Babe podcast listeners 10% off their five-day nutrition program. Go to prolonlife.com slash boss babe. That's P-R-O-L-O-N life.com slash boss babe for this special offer. Prolonlife.com slash boss babe. Yeah. So I really wanted to show up intentionally 
And I, I loved getting to talk about the work and ask questions. So actually, I was really showing up to learn and to offer whatever I could in exchange. So it wasn't that I was showing up trying to be front and center. I was trying to soak in as much as I could and offer back whatever I could as in reciprocity. So I didn't think of it as, um, you know, let me make sure I put myself out in this meeting or let me make sure I'm, you know, very visible. It was more so I want to make sure this is done right for the community. I want to learn as much as possible because this place is fascinating and there's so many more people here who know much more than I do and I have something I can contribute. And so knowing those things, especially thinking about, well, my communities deserve the best, it was really my care that allowed me to speak up. And so, again, it wasn't out of, I just want to be seen. It was, this product needs to be the best it can be because our people deserve the best we can give them. And if we're going to be the ones in the decision-making seats, we got to make sure we bring our best. And so from that, um, yeah, I was talking with the project lead a lot and just able to say, hey, what do you think about this? Or, hey, can you teach me your ideas on this? And I think the openness and curiosity is what eventually created the space for me to just throw out whatever ideas that um, I had I had mulling. How do you think your um, curiosity and that openness was curated though? Because that, that sounds like, mm-hmm. I'm just listening and I'm like, wow, this is so in- inspiring that, you know, uh, I do think a lot of people struggle to put ideas out there or yeah. to ask questions and be curious. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's a skill set that is difficult. I'm particularly in this cancel culture now. You can't yeah. be like, you have to be curious in the right places. And just even in the in the workplace, people are asking questions and learning or whatever they're doing, like mm-hmm. any any subject. I think there's like a, oh, are you asking that question? How do you know that question? Or yeah. even if that's not happening, people worrying about that not happening. Mm-hmm. So I love that you've got this like curious growth mindset <laughs> where you're just like putting yourself up there and you have this heart that's like I'm gonna ask this question because I want to make the yeah. best product possible or the best mm-hmm. change possible yeah was that like embedded in you from like your parents or so I mean maybe but I really think it's just partly how I'm wired mm-hmm. and what it comes down to is I love people so much and so and I see people as individuals who are just like infinite stories with so much to learn and grow. And I I really don't feel as though I'm any better or any less than any other person. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about, um, and we've talked about this a little bit, but I really am fueled by mortality motivation. So the understanding that I die one day, and I don't know what comes next, but I know there's a transition of some sort, that's enough to really keep me grounded daily. And when I think about that and I think about, well, okay, if I'm going to die, my time is super precious. And that means a lot to me, but that also means that like Danielle's time is super precious and Hunter's time is super precious. Like that is something I I hold with a sacredness. Wow. And so if I get to share time with you or if I get to, you know, learn from your eyes, that's amazing to me. You know, and when I think about the more we can connect and we're all equally worthy and we can share and broaden each other's perspectives, that gives a more vibrant life. And so really, that's what I think of. Like, I know we talk about business. I know this is a podcast about you guys do a great job of being holistic. There are a lot of scenes. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, entrepreneurship discussion. But to me, business is not the main thing. It's not the most important. Like your time is and your experience in this world is. And so if I get to share in that with you and we can create things together, like we can learn together, we can grow together, we can hurt together and heal 
that to me is is what matters. And so I know we talk a lot and like have vulnerable conversations and whatnot. That feels like real humanness. Like that yeah. feels like the human condition that I find so, so sacred. And yeah, no, I fully agree. Like that to me is why we started the Boss Babe podcast because mm-hmm. it's like the behind the scenes and the real yeah. behind the scenes of that. Because yeah, look, if you are thinking that money is going to make you happy, you are never going to mm-hmm. be happy. Yeah. Like it's about finding purpose and loving yourself and doing things that light you up. And I I really want to acknowledge that because I think yeah. like, you know, I've met a lot of wealthy people at this point. And honestly, the ones that are the happiest, they're not happy because they, like don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. I think there's a certain wealth of being able to you know, put food on the table oh, and like, you know, I think it's like, what is it above $70,000 a year? It must've mm-hmm. gone up now with inflation, <laughs> but, um, you, your happiness doesn't increase. Yeah. And I think that's the really important thing to acknowledge that, um, it's about finding what lights you up and mm-hmm. going on that journey. And then I think if you go into the types of money being an energy then yeah maybe if you're passionate about something and Mm -hmm. you're energetically doing these things yeah maybe money comes as a result of it and maybe it doesn't too but the point is you're living a life that you love and Mm -hmm. um that that's the kind of stuff that you can't buy in my opinion but no I'm like glad I'm glad we're talking about this because this is really honestly what lights me up and makes Mm -hmm. me happy and um I want to kind of bring your story right to the point where you were leaving you know you were recommended mm-hmm. that you know you gotta you gotta take this woman with you guys yeah. she's been inspirational and really impactful in growing mm-hmm. this business and this nonprofit and having these you know ideas taken on so ta- go from where that story left off mm-hmm. where of course. you went into really starting to make a change on a bigger level yeah so Took the idea from what was called Little Bird Innovation to Seeding Success and Porter Leaf and built out a, pro- a program that would restructure the early childhood education industry in Shelby County to redistribute the cost, task, and time burdens that currently hinder early childhood education programs, or as some people call them preschool or daycare, from their best quality and sustainability. And so created a model that's a shared services model. I won't get too nerdy (laughs) because y'all please Google shared services early childhood if you're curious. But built that model out. And then um, when looked at all the components, it had a $32 million price tag. And so then spent the next 18 months in funding conversations. So pitching to investors, writing grants, et cetera, um, to get the full funding before we started. So when we launched the program, it actually was fully funded at $32 million. And had that as a three-year pilot initiative to say, okay, we're going to prove this out. And then ultimately, we're going to show the state hey, this is a really, really great model that's um, cost-effective. It gives you great outcomes. There's a lot of accountability, really demonstrated leadership, et cetera, in the investment in early care and education. So you all should make this in- this kind of investment and hopefully do it statewide. So we built this out for, as a proof of concept to show the state. And when we got that fun- when I got that funded, um, it really was a-, a game changer. And at this point, you know, I struggled with a lot of imposter syndrome getting to this point. I'm sure everybody everybody struggles with it, but I especially, you know, being in the first gen space, I, there wasn't representation that I could really look to. So I told myself, okay, you have to lean into your care. You have to lean into your care because if you make this about you, 
you just will be really frantic. And so making it about my care, I said, okay, I'm going to lead this. And when we got it funded, the organization it's now housed at said, we want you to run it. Design is very different than implementation, which I found out much, much later. But I said yes, and I was really honored. And at that point, I think something clicked in me where I was like, oh, I'm not just a designer, I'm a CEO. And this is powerful. And at that moment, you know, I was in Instagram has actually been a really powerful tool for me professionally because even if I didn't have exact representation in front of me, it was online. And so I was able to look into things like healing. I was able to look into things like what kind of careers exist, how people approach their careers, especially women. And so in that process, I had heard of, obviously I knew of Forbes 30 under 30. I recognized how people using an online platform could help increase their visibility and influence. So when this funded, I thought to myself, okay, I know how to write grants. I know that you need a clear mission, you need clear outcomes, and you need to quantify them, but also add qualitative data, right? So when Forbes 30 Under 30 came up, the nominations, I said to myself, I can write a grant. I can write myself a nomination. So I nominated myself. And good for you. I, thank you. And, and good for you for sharing that too. Thank that you. That's very important. Most yeah. people do share and nominate themselves for Forbes 30. I want 30, people to know. And go no nominate yourself. About that. Yeah. yeah, go nominate. Go. If anyone is under 30, <laughs> I was too old. Once I found out about it, yes. I said, damn it, I'm too old. I'm gonna... But no, go nominate yourself. For yeah, because sure. I, I thought to myself, you know, and this story goes back a long ways, but one one day I realized um, in a parallel that if I wanted someone to buy me flowers, it should be me. And so if I wanted things to happen in my life, I should do them. I wanted Forbes 30 under 30, so I nominated myself, and then I let it go. So I knew, okay, my job is to show up and put in work and then release the outcome because I can't control that, right? So I nominate myself. I hear back. And um, I hear back, I submitted in April, I heard back in October. And this was so funny. So Randall Lane, he's one of the, I think like the chief editor at Forbes. He just reaches out and he says, hey, Chloe, got your nomination. We need to do some due diligence. Can you please fill out this form? It's this long form and it goes into just really trying to verify what I had submitted. And then they say, thank you. You'll hear back when the rest of the world finds out who's on the list. So they don't tell you in advance. Wow. And so I was like, okay. And I think it was December 3rd of 2019. I was heading into a meeting. I knew the list was launching that day. I had sworn to myself I was not going to check social. I checked my email three minutes before a meeting. And it says, congratulations, Chloe. Welcome to the 2020 class of Forbes 30 and 30. I screamed. I freaked out. It was so exciting. And I just had this moment of, oh my gosh, I've put in a lot of work. I, you know, learned the strategy of how you position yourself, of how you tell your story, of how you bet on yourself, and it paid off. And it was just, you know, such a game-changing moment for me. And then I think a month later, the Memphis TEDx chapter reached out and just said, hey, we are really impressed by all you've done. Would you give a TED Talk? And so just these kinds of things of, and that's something I had wanted to, right? Like I told myself one day I'll do a TED Talk, but I hadn't put any action behind it. So these things kind of came at the same time and they were strongly reaffirming that I was not only on the right trajectory, but my strategies were working because what showed me I was on the right place was that my values felt aligned. So I don't, I really want to caution people like awards don't show you you're on the right trajectory. Like accomplishments don't show you that. Your character and your feelings of alignment and integrity do. And there's a strategic part of how you 
become your own publicist, how you run your own PR, and how you frame your messaging does, um, there are indicators of the response that shows you're successful. Let's talk about framing messaging because mm-hmm. I think I think this is actually really powerful because when you are doing something like yourself where yeah. it's so heartfelt and it's so much for the better of you know society, mm-hmm. like we want to get that message out. You want to get that message yeah. out. And there are tools and things that you, just like you said, strategically did. If you think about like, okay, you went for thought website you submitted for Forbes 1330 Mm -hmm. then the TEDx you're all you're talking about big publications here that is having influence that is having impact and that is actually elevating the work that you are doing it's putting it in front of more people so let's go back to that like what were the strategic ways that you thought about getting your message out there Mm -hmm. more yeah so in my mind my message is it's so expansive that I had to boil it down into something simple and digestible so I just picked three three adjectives and I was like, okay, or three nouns. Like, what do I want to make sure when I talk to people, they know about me? And one is that I think it's cool to care. Two, I believe that you can make an impact and not sacrifice your well-being or your, your financial stability. And three, that I'm someone who's really open and curious. And so if I can leave somebody with those messages, they likely want a follow-up conversation. And then if they don't, that's totally okay. At least they know where I'm coming from. And so that's what I like to show up with. And they're values, but they're values I live by. And so with that, in anything I write, anything I say, it's really in that kind of lane. And so being able to craft my stories and use certain outlets as amplifiers, I knew that the message feels aligned. Whatever I say has got to be in line with those kinds of pillars. And if it's amplified, it's okay because it's a good message. How did you come up with those? Because I feel like a lot of mm-hmm. people listening, it's going to be some of them are going to be like, oh, I know what mine are straight off, straight out of the gate. I know yeah. what mine are. <laughs> and others are going to be like, oh, I haven't really thought about that mm-hmm. before. I have no idea what mine are going to be. Like, how yeah. did you explore that? So this is a phenomenal question because I had no idea at first. So I didn't just wake up and know. Mm -hmm. I realized that I wanted to tell a story, but I needed a better framework for how. And especially because it's so big in my mind that distilling it down was something that was really difficult for me. Mm -hmm. So I literally started Googling, like, how to pitch yourself. What do publicists do? What is PR? Like, just the nitty-gritty basics. And from there, you know, different tangents or rabbit holes, I started finding people who speak on this, people who teach on this, and they started, I started finding, you know, best practice in the industry standards. But also when I looked at other people's stories, I took note and said, like, what stands out to me here? Or when I think about myself, what do I want to convey to other people? And part of this, and this is really really why I tell people, like, I think it's cool to care because when you lean into your care and you understand what that looks like, you actually learn a lot about yourself. Like we call um, this kind of knowledge like business intelligence. It's like personal intelligence, right? Like, do you know yourself? And I know that I care. So if I can convey that, then again, it just helps me be more energetic or more open to opportunities. So really it was looking like Google was my best friend and saying like, like, what is life? What is character? What is, you know, PR? Like all of these things. And it started making sense to me from there. And I think it loops back around to that other value that you have, which is curiosity mm-hmm. and openness, because that's why you're like willing to go, hey, <laughs> what is this for me? Like, how do I Google this? Like, and I think that it honestly isn't a, a skill to be or a value to be underrated, quite mm-hmm. honestly. I think those who are open-minded and curious, I generally see 
doing really well because they're open to change. They're open to learning. They're open to like, oh, like this belief system doesn't serve me anymore and I get to change it to move forwards. Um, And I think the definition of sanity is doing the same thing over and over again, (laughs) expecting expecting a different outcome, right? And I think it's really powerful for people to remember that when they keep doing the same thing and they're not being curious Mm -hmm. and they're not being open to a different approach or a different way of doing things. And when people are like, oh, it's okay for you or it's okay for me or I can't possibly do that or, you know, like always looking for Mm -hmm. an external reason, I, I think that's giving away so much power. Yeah. is okay well how could I be curious about learning mm. and one X, thing I want to say it? too is for women especially of this is actually a fourth pillar that I adopted mm-hmm. maybe a couple of years ago was that I was going to be unapologetic about my excellence Ooh, and I like so, that that's very boss babe <laughs> thank you I, I know that's why I love y'all <laughs> but yeah I, I decided I was like you know I'm really good at what I do I know that. And that's not arrogant. That's actually healthy Mm self-esteem. And so being in that and because my work impacts communities, they need my best. And so I can't be, I can't be apologetic about my best because that hinders what I give to my communities. And so with that, um, another key thing I wanted people to know about me is that I'm going to give you the best product. And because I've led with that, I led with my care, um, I was appointed by our lieutenant governor to lead a multi-billion dollar strategic plan to redesign what early care and education looks like for the future of Tennessee. And it's because I didn't sit back and I didn't put myself on the back burner because I was afraid of judgment or I was afraid that people would think of me in all kinds of ways. I also, all of my peers are at least 20 years my senior. Um, They're all people who are, you know, mid to towards the like tail end of their careers and, you know, have a very, they're wonderful people. I don't, this is not disparaging their character at all, but they very much have a sense of like we're seasoned and we got here. Mm. So I'm, I'm a newcomer and they've welcomed me, which is great, but it's also because of how I presented myself. And so this is something I, I so appreciated about you uplifting for me was, um, helping explain that, yeah, you don't have to be an entrepreneur to make a large scale impact. Like I'm leading a multi-billion dollar strategic plan and I was, and this is not out of my entrepreneurship. That's something totally different. And because of this, there's also, I can't give details just because it's still in the works, but another state has asked me to do the same thing. And so it's just like, there are whole states asking me to do like multi-billion dollar strategic plans for them to help communities have better, like, just ways of being, you know, and better resources. And it's because I said I care, I'm curious, I'm open, I'm, like, pretty non-judgmental, and I'm going to give you excellence. And there's something very human, I think, about that. And I think I'm also very quick to say what I don't know. So there's not a sense of it's got to be my way or the highway. I think that's really the essence of a true designer is being able to hold space for people, hold space for ideas and figure out what in all of this comes together to best serve our people. And so for women who are listening or anybody who struggles with, you know, confidence, I actually think confidence and your ability to execute just come to a sense of actually humility and feeling like you don't have to be the best one out there. You don't have to be an incredible rock star to be valuable. You just need to be you and you just need to care and you have you need to have a sense of, I'm going to figure this out even if I don't know and just be open to what that process looks like. Because if you told homegirl back when she graduated from college that she was going to be leading multi-billion dollar strategic plans and being sought after for this, when I didn't even know how to get a job in my field, 
I, I don't know. I would have just gone to sleep. I would have laughed at you. I would have been like, nope, going to get some chips. Like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but being open and, and being myself and, and requiring excellence, not in a self-punitive way, but in a way that lights me up, has opened all kinds of doors that I was, I had enough humility to walk through. You are so freaking inspiring. <laughs> just like Thank listening you. to you. I'm just like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> no wonder states are fighting over you. Um, let, let's talk about that though, because mm-hmm. I think this is also really important. Like you spoke about being like owning your excellence. Yeah. And I really commend that. And I think that's actually not encouraged enough. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say in women. Um, I don't want to make that judgment, but I feel like it's not encouraged enough in certain cultures, maybe, as a better one. Because even from the UK, they're like, if you, like, shout, we always used to say, mm-hmm. like, in the UK, um, this was just my opinion, this was just yeah. a general opinion, and what I knew to be true in my world was that, you know, in the UK, you have to play down your wins. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, don't shine too bright. They're not going to be flat. No one's going to like you for that. Like, yeah. you know, and... We always used to think like Americans were like really good at shouting themselves <laughs> out, right? Yeah. And so I just think it's really like, and, and as if that was like a bad thing. Yeah. Like, ooh, you can't say you're good at something. Mm-hmm. Like, how arrogant of you. Yeah. And as I've got older and I've met amazing people, and I, I think, don't get me wrong, arrogance exists, but I also think that's like mislabeled. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think someone just feeling like, do you know what? I'm good at this and I want to own it. I'm also really shit at that and I'm mm-hmm. going to own that too, but I want to own the things I'm good at. Yeah. And I want to be able to share things that I'm good at. And like what that does for you. Because I, I I hear that in your story. Like mm-hmm. you've owned the things that you've been good at. You've also, like you said, you've had humility. You've like yeah. shared, I don't know everything, but I do know this thing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if like sharing that has allowed your career to probably like 10x, 20x, 30x. Because mm-hmm. if you, like you say, you're working with people who are a lot older than you. And just like that, getting that message across to people that it's okay to yeah. own your stories and it's okay to own who you are what you're good at and also what you're not good at yeah how have you shared that with the world too mm. because you know it's important to have a um a message and a social like you're, you're doing something like you're making changes but that change is hard to see mm-hmm. you know if you don't share it yeah right and I think your you know conversation that I had with you that's actually really um, like how we ended up getting to know each other was because mm-hmm. of influence at school because you wanted to share this message more. And I think even doing your TEDx talk, right? Yeah. You were there to share a message. So talk to me, talk to me about that, how you feel that, you know, social media or platforms have helped you get to where you are and have mm-hmm. more impact than you would have done perhaps otherwise. Yeah. So I'll answer this in two part. Um, the first part is that back to the piece you were saying about, you know, owning what you're good at and also owning what you can grow in. I think it's because we've been taught that humility means no self-esteem and that you just deny every compliment. You don't explain that you're good enough or, or good at anything. And to me, that's actually, again, that's just destroying your sense of self where I think confidence is something that you don't have to even tell other people. You can own what you're good at without telling other people. And that's for me a lot. Honestly, sometimes the feedback I get is my community saying, hey, you should tell us more things because <laughs> you do these great things and then say nothing. Um, but it's because it's for me, right? And it's not that I'm hiding it from people, but I appreciate it. I internalize it and like soak up the goodness. And then I'm moving on. Did you do Forbes 13 to 30 for you or for 
Oh, absolutely. I, I did it for me, and it was actually uncomfortable when other people saw it, and I had, okay. to, I had to deal with that. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had to deal with It's funny. The It feels so good to me, and I'm so proud of it, and it was other people's praise that made me uncomfortable. And so that's something, you know, maybe I'll work through in therapy, but <laughs> it was also really kind. Like, I saw the kindness. And I think the same thing is true when showing up on social. So at first, I also am so so culprit to the initial understandings of social back in like the 2010s of people really just trying to flex on, on the gram, right? And I was not into it. But the more I realized that this is a real way people communicate, this is a real, like this, this is our culture. This is our world. You know, the way we are connected now is largely digital. When I recognize that and how much you can do from the comfort of wherever you want to be, it occurred to me that, you know, if I want to help people feel a little better in their skin, and if I would like the opportunity to help change our systems and our narratives, social is a great way to do that. And so, you know, I really started looking for, um, and this is kind of what we were talking about earlier, I like to put myself in the position to learn and to use strategy. And I had followed Boss Babe for years, so mega fan. And when I saw that you guys were doing influencer school, I couldn't help but say to myself, like, I've been doing this for years. I'm not really sure of the strategy. I get really disoriented when I don't have a good strategy in front of me or the I'm tools. The yeah, it's, it's hard for me. Yeah. And so I have to know the North Star. I have to like roughly know where I'm going. Yes, because if mm. not, I feel like I'm just throwing like, too. things against a wall. I think that's a personality trait. I don't think everyone has that, but mm-hmm. that for me, I think it's a J in Myers-Briggs. That's, oh, I have yeah. it too. Yeah, yeah, I'm also J. J. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you guys are so good at what you do. And for me, I'm someone I had spent $10,000 in courses trying to figure out social media and 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 business and you know, my platform. When I saw you all doing influencer school, I just immediately joined. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to join this and I'm not going to be I'm not going to be a rock star. I'm not going to aim to, you know, hit a home run, I'm going to aim to be consistent and I'm going to aim to be excellent for me because I'm investing in me. I'm investing in my growth. I'm investing in learning how to tell my story and I'm learning from incredible experts with real results and repeated results. So start influencer school with that in mind. I show up to every coaching call. I'm doing the work. I'm hopefully, you know, giving encouragement to other students as much as I can And the results were phenomenal. Like I started influencer school with my Instagram platform hitting right at about 6,000, which I was really proud of. So Um, you should be. And, you know, through the 90 days, I grew to 10.4K. Which is insane. So we went from (laughs) 6,000 to 10.4K in 90 days. Yes. Holy moly. Yeah. And it it really was showing up, being consistent and doing the work, which I'm not even going to say I know people don't like to hear. I didn't like to hear it, but I didn't like to hear yeah. it because I didn't know what the work meant. I didn't know how to do it. And Influencer School gave me the how. So it was really great to not only have that support, but you, Amy, um, Natalie, and Hunter were awesome. Like any questions I had, y'all were on it. Y'all gave great detail. Y'all were also very affirming. And I would even like chat y'all during the <laughs> Zoom calls and be like, thank you so much. And you're like, are you welcome? So it just felt like a really great connection. Yeah. And it really was, you know, the support that I got from you all that helped not only helped me stay consistent, but helped me start putting the pieces together that I had been, you know, I've been researching and learning for years, but hearing you all implement, seeing you all in action, going through the curriculum and really being on the coaching calls helped me with cohesion and helped me put the strategy together. 
And that's where everything started unlocking. So whereas, yes, you can learn online. Yes, you can try to like piecemeal things together. There's nothing like a cohesive and robust system of support to help you in a really logical way develop your own systems. And that's one of the biggest things I got from influencer school. Do you, and I'm really glad we're talking about this, not from like an influencer school perspective, but from a perspective of using platforms Mm -hmm. to support the change you want to see and understanding how you can leverage a strategy Mm -hmm. to have impact with your bigger goals. Because for me, my bigger goal is to like help women earn wealth. Like I want to teach more women how to make more Mm -hmm. money. And, you know, we have a lot of conversations behind the scene around what that looks like. Like, what are the different avenues that we can teach? And that's why we always say our courses are no fluff, they're no BS, and we Mm -hmm. hold nothing back. We never keep the best stuff for ourselves at all. We're like, here, this is everything we know about social media, plus more that we've learned from experts, and we're going to bring them in to come Mm -hmm. and teach you. And I think there is such power with social media and sharing things like this actually create social change. It kills me, the pay gap. It absolutely kills (laughs) me. The the VC funding, it's like less than 2% Mm. going to women. And it's like, these are the things that I really care about and want to make a change. And Mm. I know if I can build my platform, I can have a bigger voice. I can make that change. I can have more power behind that change. And that's what really, really drives me. And I feel like when you do, I think it's rare for social media to actually be natural to someone. Mm -hmm. Like I think there are some people it's very natural, but I would argue the majority of people, it's not natural to put yourself on social media all the time. Like it's not, you know, something you're like, oh yeah, like Mm -hmm. I'm just going to do this. I'm I'm in this moment and I'm actually going to grab my phone and record it. Yeah. So I think that a lot of people are motivated to do it because they are driven by a why. Mm -hmm. And for some, that why is significance. As Tony Robin talks about, I've had him on the podcast before and he talks about, you know, there's these core things that people are driven by and significance is a big one for someone. Mm -hmm. But then there's also, you're driven by the why. Like I'm so driven by the why of other people. I went on social media last night with no makeup, really not like, I wasn't even planning to, but someone tagged me in a post that said I'd inspired them. And I was like, shit, this is why I need to be on social media. I need to tell Mm. them this is why I come on because it's like, I don't do it for me. Like I do it so that other people can know that they can do it too. Yeah. And I think that's what I see in like your, your mission is less about you and Mm -hmm. more about the impact that you're having. And I think when you can connect to that why so strongly, it motivates you mm-hmm. to move. It motivates you to show up. It motivates you to put yourself in positions that you don't really want to be on. Yeah. Like you're coming on this podcast yeah. today. Were you nervous or <laughs> how did you feel coming on? Honestly, I had some some pre-nerves until I saw your face. And then I was like, oh, okay. We're yeah, good. Just yeah, yeah. But that's the point. And, but you came on too because why? Yeah. Yeah, so it's exactly like what you've already said. It's my care. And getting to have a conversation with you is incredible. And getting to be in front of, like on the Boss Babe podcast is a dream. And I hope that people feel a bit better about themselves and inspired in their lives so that they can feel a little better. And I'm someone who I have um, an anxiety disorder. I have dysthymia, which is like a really subtle form of depression. And so I know how the day-to-day, like what your energy is, can affect what you feel like your life is. Mm -hmm. And so I plug into resources to nourish my mind 
all the time so that I'm constantly cultivating like what I want internally to be this lush garden in my mental space. And Boss Babes podcast is definitely part of my routine. <laughs> I try not to show how much of a fangirl I am, but it's so strong. I just had Lisa Bellio on before you and I find, I mean, she's a friend and I still fangirl over yeah. her. I made her sign my book. <laughs> I was like, can you sign my book? So and I was like, and then she's signing. I was like, no, no, can you write me a message? I'm not yeah. selling it. I want, I want <laughs> like a personalized me. message, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> so I but appreciate I that. I really want to say, you know, I was listening to Yule's episode with Pyle. Mm. And when you started talking about the VC funding and the gaps, one of the things I really believe about building a platform is that, you know, a lot of people see social change and they think, oh, I can, and there are levels to it. You can have, um, you know, individual contributions to another human. You can donate as a philanthropist. You can give people the tools to make change. And then there's changing systems, which is, yes, only 2% of VC funding goes to women, period. And then you can disaggregate that to see like women of color, queer women, differently Mm -hmm. abled women, what have you, and see the disparities there. That's very real. And Danielle Canty can become the VC funder, right? And you can be the one who's saying, okay, I know this is a barrier. I'm going to remove that barrier for women, right? Mm -hmm. Or for whomever. And there are so many barriers like that, that when you remove them, it's one thing to give people tools, but when you remove barriers, people soar. Yep. That is just like a proven fact. All the data shows it out. Like sometimes people think, oh, well, people are just lazy or why? like they have the tools. Why don't they do something about it? In 2018, the U.S. Department of Labor showed that of the women not in the workforce, 70% said not having access to childcare was why they couldn't have a full-time job. But there's no amount of skills that can compensate for not having access to childcare. And so if your choice is leave my child, my infant by themselves and go to work or stay home and make sure my infant stays alive and healthy, that's not a choice. And so, yes, it's one thing to get to inspire people. It's one thing to, you know, do individual acts of kindness and to give people tools to learn how to do things. But I firmly believe, and this is what I want my platform to really be about, is that when you educate people that there are barriers at a systemic level and how to move them out the way of people, you really see communities start to soar. And that's where I believe social impact shines brightest. I love that. I can see Bopo in the corner of our eye, our social media manager, <laughs> nodding along too. And I feel like this is getting us like so excited. It, it's so true. I could not agree more. And I had... um. Pocket Sun, she's one of the co-founders of SoGal mm. um, on here. Like before we were actually doing video, but I was so inspired by yeah. her story. Her and her business partner, Elizabeth, they started a, a VC company um, in their 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the whole sole purpose of investing in women and mainly women of minority, women of color yeah. um, in their companies. And I was so inspired by her. I was like, I've never, I've never invested in a VC fund before. Like, how do I invest out of it? Yeah. And honestly, that fund, because this is what gets even better. This mm-hmm. is why I'm so freaking passionate about <laughs> investing in women too. That fund is my best performing investment. Mm-hmm. I have ever made. Hell yeah, of course because, it is. Yeah. Exactly. Of course it of is. Of course it is. There yeah. are women running these companies out of my stocks, out of my shares, everything I've done. Hmm. That is my number one yeah. best asset return. And I'm like, just shows you what happens when you invest in also something that you believe in mm-hmm. too. And I, yeah, I think I, I, I'm 
very inspired by this conversation and I'm also like oh wow like I actually get to move more barriers too Mm -hmm. and I think it's always a great reminder you know I think hearing and having these conversations and being open to like oh actually there's more I can do there's more things that I can do as well and what's next and always like moving through that I think is really important and that's why I'm so excited and so inspired and excited for you to share more of your story on social media Mm -hmm. because you know I mean, what you're doing, there's probably at the level that you're doing it, not that many people, yeah. you know, in control of this, these amounts of funds and changing mm-hmm. these systems the way you are. What's next for you? Yeah. So what's next for me is really helping other people do what I've done in their own flavor. Mm-hmm. So I want to see creatives, artists, maybe future politicians, people who are great in the business space to understand that they can also lead large-scale social impact without having to be a career activist or community organizer. You can be the best basket weaver in the world and also change education for a community. Like really it's the the core skills of creativity, the open-mindedness, the understanding, you know, there are real practices to make sure you're not harming communities, make sure that your resources are actually well deployed, not just, you know, being wasted. So there are real things that you need to know. But if you care and you want to see a change in the world, you can make it happen. And I want to be one of the people in in your cheerleading group that is helping you make it happen. So I will be coaching through Instagram and also just like showing up for people Mm -hmm. there. And on the other side, I'm a practitioner at heart. So while I want to help other people do the same, I also want to work with businesses or platforms like Obsessed with Boss Babe, would love to see how you all change how entrepreneurship and women's interactions look for the future. Like Boss Babe to me is a leader in this industry. And so, you know, just platforms like this, helping them figure out their own social impact and helping, um, you know, especially people who have existing platforms learn how to leverage that for social change and then let them run with it. Like I want to help them get there and then just build it on that. So that's, that's what's next for me. I love that. And 100%. I am like here to be curious, open and learn. And I think yeah. that's, what's, that's what makes Boss Babe so unique as well. It's like, mm. you know, how how we can leverage it for the better and for social yeah. change as well. And that we want to do it. And it's not about Natalie and I. It's not the Natalie and Danielle show. It's about all <laughs> the women that are part of it. Yeah. It really is about the community. And when I go on any of the calls that we have, whether it's a society, like our membership for female entrepreneurs, or whether it's mm-hmm. influencer school that you were part of, like, I'm like so excited to see people like women from all over the world Truly. of different backgrounds, of different cultures, of different classes. Like that is really exciting to me because then yeah. also like ideas grow when people talk. Like it's the I think that's the only thing I will say about so um social media is the echo chamber with mm-hmm. the algorithm. I think is actually really dangerous. That's the yeah. one thing that you get used to being shown the same, same thing over and over again. Actually, I will say if anyone's listening to this, go try and like go down new rabbit holes if you're mm-hmm. if you see someone on a podcast or you see someone in the media or somewhere go and follow them if it's a little bit different to what you would normally be watching yeah. and looking at and then you'll be surprised at the different like variety that you will get then from the algorithm mm-hmm. versus the same 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 because I think we all owe it to ourselves to be open and curious continuously yeah. and that's how we grow in all the ways and how society ultimately gets better I love that um I would love for you, Chloe, just to share like your handles and how people can 
follow you. I want to put a link to your TEDx mm-hmm. talk as well because oh, that you. was so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to give the title again about purpose and wellness? Yes, it's called um, Stop Chasing Purpose and Pursue Wellness. And it's, girl, this title has got people up in arms. But the the gist of it is really? that, yeah, you'd be very surprised. Um, but most people have found that Yes. Watch the talk. Most people have found that the concept is a bit radical, but really calming to your nervous system and to just like your life story. But it's really on how if you pursue wellness first, which is really pursuing you first, everything else becomes much more beautiful. So Mm -hmm. I will... I won't give the whole talk. I like that because I feel like purpose is such a buzzword that then people Mm -hmm. get tripped up on and really confused by. Absolutely. um, A lot of the time. Actually, I want to pause on this for a second. Why did you choose to do that title? Yeah. So purpose for me actually stems from, I mean, I had a religious upbringing and, you know, really it was like, if you do good, then you'll be worthy. And I actually think that that was wrong. I think that you are good and you are worthy and your life is the first responsibility you're given. And so your goal, if you will, should be to be a good steward of your own life, not trying to fix everyone else, not trying to, you know, be of service so that you back in a backhanded way, find out that you're worthy. You're already there. And so when I realized that um, and started taking care of myself, all the things I wanted to do became 10 times better anyways, because I was healthy and I was content and I wasn't, you know, putting the very heavy expectations of fulfilling my worth on my projects or on my loved ones or um, on my dog. <laughs> like, like, you know, I wasn't outsourcing the internal work. And that's really what I want people to see is that you have so much power in your own life and in how you perceive yourself. And it starts by just taking care of you. And that's what I was hoping people would get. I feel like you're a old soul in a young <laughs> body. You're very, you're probably one of the wisest guests I've had on here. I feel like there's so many little sound bites. I just want to replay to myself. And I I know you'll have inspired so many women listening mm. to this. Thank you. Inspired to, you know, perhaps maybe if they're not doing it already in their lives, to look at the social impact that they can mm. have. Because I think that's where it starts. It starts there. It starts on the ground and it starts like, just like you were saying, you can do these things and like working up to like, what are the, what mm-hmm. are the blocks that we can all be responsible for moving? So yeah. thank you for coming on. Thank you for coming on and educating, inspiring, leading mm-hmm. all of those things. So let's share your social handles as well, Chloe. Yes, I am Chloe Hackim Moore, H-A-K-I-M-M-O-O-R-E mm-hmm. on all my platforms. So okay. um, really, Instagram is the best way to connect with me. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank this was amazing. you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you subscribed and left us a review. Let us know what you enjoyed, what your main takeaways were, and who you'd like to see appear on the show. As a special thanks, we'll send you a copy of our Boss Babe 25. Now, this is an awesome resource. It's the 25 essential things that you need for personal and professional growth. We've included everything from must-have products to books to rituals. This guide literally covers it all, and I know you're going to love it. So if you want your copy, simply leave us a review and then send a screenshot of your review to podcast at bossbabe.com. 